Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with James Hoare, who is a friend of mine from a very long time ago. He's a professional in the world now, but uh, we knew each other from the Law Review at Sydney University, and uh, he's a very thoughtful and interesting person. We spoke about grief and masculinity. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation. I am wrapping up tonight my... uh, run of Mythos in Sydney. It's been a totally sold out run and I'm happier and happier with the show uh, every day, though I had a, a friend who's a director come last night and make some extremely good points about bits that I was being lazy about, uh, which is always nice uh, to have someone whose opinion you respect really uh, enjoy the show and tell you what is uh, wrong about it. I normally am not, um, you know, people have their ideas and their notes and often they're wrong but it's always nice to have someone who knows your mind and knows where you're coming from say this isn't clear you're not positioning yourself clearly enough here you need to do this uh, if you want this to happen uh, which is what a director is for uh, also uh, it, it was just very nice to see you uh, what else uh, thank you so much to everyone who has come it's been truly uh, delightful to get so much support in my hometown I'll be back in London and I'll be doing a uh, show of mythos in London on the 10th of July at the Museum of Comedy. Tickets are available online if you Google Alice Fraser Mythos Museum of Comedy. They'll be there. Uh, Thank you everybody who subscribed to the Patreon and downloaded uh, the film of Ethos that is available now to the $5 subscribers. If you are not a subscriber uh, at that level, you can up it for the month and get the download. And if you uh, want to, you can just subscribe for the month to get the download. It's like buying it. Um, The reason I've done it that way, I explain in the post, but uh, the reason I've done it that way is because I'm currently shopping it around to different platforms um, who might want exclusivity, uh, which means if you do download it, please don't share it around. Um, I'm relying on your honour for that. I know I can't control it, arguably, according to my management. It's a really stupid idea to just make it available in that way, even though it is limited to my Patreons. I'm assuming that if you are a Patreon, you like my work, you support my work, you want me to be successful (laughs) financially in this industry, and so uh, I would trust that to mean that you won't share it around. And if you do want to show it to a friend, you can either show it to them on your computer or you can get them to subscribe for the $5. I I don't think that's a huge amount of money uh, for what was a lot of work. I don't know. Enough of that. Thank you, everybody who's emailed me, alicerfraser at gmail.com, people who follow me on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. You might be able to hear in my voice that I am sick, uh, but uh, it's all right. It will be, it'll be all right. Uh, it's been a busy couple of days. Also, I went to the Australian Podcasting Awards last night. I did not win. Tony Martin won with his incredible comedy podcast, Sizzletown, and he is an Australian comedy legend and I'm very very pleased for him also uh, knowing now having done the judging for the British uh, British podcast awards in the um, current affairs section I know what a sort of an odd mix of randomness and politics and personal opinion and uh, what do we want to say about ourselves by giving this award those conversations can be uh, which means I've been taking it a lot less personally Uh, not that I've ever taken awards stuff 
hyper personally but it just puts it all into perspective when you have been a judge uh, what that process is and and how how little it really does have uh, to do with how good the show is beyond a certain point it is any award is just somebody saying what do I want to say about myself with this award um, which is interesting I don't know. It was an insight to me. It's probably not an insight to you. Uh, if you have anything to say, email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. I really do love getting those emails. I do try to reply to all of them. If I haven't replied to you, it's probably because you've said something really interesting and I've put it aside so that I can give a better response and then it's fallen off my map. So feel free to nudge me if you've sent me something and I haven't replied. Uh, that's that. Um, that's that. Listen to the podcast coming up now with James Hoare. I'll talk to you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Uh, who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, I am James Hoare, a friend of Alice's from a while ago. We went to university together uh, and I am drinking turmeric and lemongrass tea. Yeah, specifically we did the law review together, mm. which was probably my first introduction to comedy really mm. structured comedy scripted yeah. comedy yeah and mine too <laughs> and then you except were, i haven't taken it the places that you have you i mean you're just still a day-to-day -day comedian in your everyday <laughs> exactly just making friends laugh that's, i mean you do do that you have that kind of positive personhood about you i tried i tried and what are you wrestling with at the moment um oh it's been a bit of a year so um guess beginning of last year sort of ended a long-term relationship at about an eight and a half year relationship and then uh suddenly last july my father got sick and i had to come back from uh from america and he passed away a couple of days after i got back so it's been a, a roller coaster of grief on a couple of fronts really there so yeah. that's that's an interesting thing and kind of uh, obviously that's horrendous and terrible and upsetting can I ask if you noted distinct, obviously there were differences, but like distinct differences between the way that you grieve the end of a relationship and the way that you grieve a death? Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a really good question. I think, I think for me, certainly the end, the, the, the death in a sense kind of pushed aside a lot of the grief about the end of the relationship and I'll probably get into why as, as we talk a bit but the um the it in some ways the grieving of the end of the relationship is a lot harder because it's like and particularly compared to um in terms of the impact on the day-to-day -day life that I had I think that was a more fundamental shift in terms of my day-to-day -day life at the time because you know this person who you live with you're no longer living with them you're no longer sharing your life with them you no longer have this this sort of sounding board who is you know a part of your entire world and then it, it's a very difficult thing to adjust to and that was very hard at the time and then the same well then that happens again <laughs> at, yeah. the, at, the, at the death of a parent but you know it's not it's a it's a very different thing in its way because you're not um you know it's it's much more fundamental but it's you know having lived overseas it was also a lot more removed you know my father was not someone i saw weekly even monthly you know it was a couple of times a year i would see him and so i think though you sort of you feel that that kind of visceral grief over the death of a parent it was it was a different impact on the day-to-day -day, um, 
of how you go about your life. Um, yeah, I think with a relationship, there's a th- there's sort of two things that happen with a breakup. The first is that there's a third party, which is the relationship. There's yes. you, there's the other person, and then there's this other thing that you're both feeding into. It's like a bridge that only stands up because both sides are pushing in on it. Yeah. And when that goes away, you grieve the loss of that thing, but also a long-term relationship you've kind of grown into one another a little bit and so it makes you question who you are in the world absolutely and you become incredible i mean if you're in any way not a sociopath you become incredibly aware of your own faults and flaws and the mistakes that you made and the way that you allowed it to happen yeah the helplessness at something like death I think is in some ways cleaner and simpler and easier to grieve yeah I think that's right. I think, you know, the end of the relationship drove much more, I guess, introspection on, you know, you know, my own behaviours, my partner's behaviour, like everything that, that kind of culminated in the end of that because you're trying to explain to yourself why this thing fell apart and why your, and what your grief is based on and, and what kind of led to that. Whereas, as you say, with death, like you're not... You're not really looking for an explanation as to as to what you did to cause it. Like you didn't do anything to cause this. This thing's just happened. Yeah. Um. And so you you just yeah you, you may be sort of a, you're, you're bereft obviously, but it's just it, it, it's a different thing. You don't sort of have the like I didn't anyway. Sort of you know I reflected on my relationship with my father and 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 my mother and my family and all of that sort of stuff as well. But it wasn't quite the same sort of level of introspection around it. It was more. You know how do I, um, how do I get through this, and how do I help my mother get through this? Because you know, obviously, it coming as a complete shock to us all, it was you know he was sick, then five days later he was dead. It was like a, a very quick turnaround. Um, yeah, and which is the opposite of my experience, yeah. which was a very long, 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 long yeah uh, process. And and it's funny, Mum and I talk about this a lot as to you know, what, not, it's hard, it's always weird talking about death, but as to what's the, what's the, what's preferable? Like, is it, is it better to sort of know that this is coming or is it better for it to just happen? And, and each of them have their own challenges, I think, in terms of, I mean, when it's, when it's coming, I guess you can prepare and you can talk to the person about their wishes and you make sure that everything's kind of in order. But when it's a shock, it's like, you know, you're sitting there saying, what kind of funeral service would my father like? And you're having that conversation three days after he dies in a funeral director's office and you've never had that conversation with him and you never can have that conversation with him. And so you're suddenly making these decisions about what that will look like. Yeah. Um, and it's it's very, it's surreal. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I think equally it's not this you don't see I, I can understand how seeing the decline in a person as well brings its own kind of pain it, even if you might be able to be logistically better off once it actually happens it's yeah the process of grieving is more drawn out of course and so you come to terms with it earlier but then again it is one of those things that you just can't come to terms with it's not something that you can understand until it's happened yeah uh, but uh, yeah I find that all of that stuff, grief, uh, without being morbid about it, really interesting because mm. it's something we don't get equipped for. 
there's no school lessons, there's no... And because it is a, at least partly a very personal thing, people don't feel like they can speak to it. Of course. But I think, I think it's one of those things, as with relationships, of, of why don't we get told some basic things at school? Why don't we get told, for example, at some point you'll be in love with someone who doesn't love you back? Mm. How do you do that graciously? Exactly. Or at some point someone will be in love with you who you don't love back. Yeah. How do you deal with that graciously? <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, you know, death will come. How do you process that? I mean, we lack a formal process for both of those things. Yeah, and that's, I, that's something that, you know, we've, we've very much moved. I think that was a part of many cultures, including our own, to, to, until a certain point in the past. But we've moved so far away from that. It's so abstracted from us now. I mean... My father is the first person who has like who has died in front of me. Mm. That that had never happened to me before. So we we were all there. We stood around his hospital bed as he took his last breaths. And I guess over the course of human history, that has been such a you know at various points that has been such a big part of the human experience because you'd live in these. How else would it happen? You know, people didn't just wander off into the forest. Well, maybe in some <laughs> cultures, but for the most part, people would always have people around them, and you'd be seeing this as you were growing up and as you were you know you'd be getting used to this idea that this is a part of life and that this is something you see and that you grieve as a community and that you um you sort of come together in that in that situation but we just don't we just don't really have that uh, kind of touchstone anymore like well yeah just knowing what as you say you're sitting in a funeral director's office asking what your dad would have wanted there's no real sense of the structuredness you can sort of choose pick and choose among various religious traditions. But, you know, it used to be very strict. And yeah. I think there was a comfort to the strictness of this is how long you wear these clothes for, this is how long you have curtains over the windows, this is how long it is before you can wear uh, jewellery. Like Exactly. And, it's, and, and part of that is, you know, also beneficial practically by just taking some decisions out of your hands. Yeah. Because make, some of the decisions that you have to make in the aftermath of it, particularly now, it's just you're making them in this fog and you forget half of what you're doing most of the time as well. It's just, and, and I guess, you know, the funeral is one example, but, you know, even just everything that kind of happens after, you know, in the months afterwards, the administration of the affairs and all of that, no one talks about that and no one talks about how, difficult and taxing that can be on whoever's sort of doing it in my case it was me and it's a it's a very um you know you it has to be the focus and it's the focus uh because it has to get done uh and but because it's the focus you kind of lose sight a little bit of you're like how you how you're responding emotionally to the events that have happened because you just have to be like I'm just getting on with this even though it because it has to be done yeah which is partly useful yeah it's partly useful but it's you know it's it can be useful in the short term my concern is what it has been from day one just I can't let this let the fact that I have to do all of this admin get in the way of the fact that I also need to grieve um, and I need to have time and space to do that um, because it, I think it can be it can be pretty dangerous, I think, to, um, you know, or to, to focus on that. And also very easy to just focus on that sort of stuff and then disengage with how you actually feel about 
what's happened. Well, I think particularly for men, mm. uh, whether so sociologically or biologically, have have a tendency to focus on what can be done. Yes. Rather than what is reality. There's, there's a constant tension, I think, between, and again, I'm characterizing it as masculine, mm. but uh, an enlightenment way of thinking, which is we're dealing with reality, not mm. with emotions, yeah. as though the two were a binary, yeah. as though emotions were not real, Yeah, uh, which they absolutely are. <laughs> They're so real. Uh, what, what about your emotional response surprised you? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I mean, I was, I, yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure that anything really surprised me, to be, to be honest. I think the, the thing that, the thing that it did was it, it made me feel a lot uh, closer to my family than I had been. And again, that's not necessarily a surprise. You know, I've been living overseas, I've come back and we're in this situation and it's, it's obviously something that you kind of, that you bond together, uh, about, but I didn't, I wasn't angry about anything. It was just, you know, it was a, it's a very sad situation and it's a very, um, it was very difficult to particularly to sort of see my mother going through what she went through. I mean, yesterday would have been their 45th wedding anniversary and so you know it's just i think yeah the anniversaries are rough yeah particularly the f the first ones after things have happened you know it's just been the you know within about a, less than a month after it happened it was my birthday and then there's been you know he shares a birthday with my nephew and so you know we're trying to celebrate my nephew's birthday but of course it's kind of tinged with this sadness because it would have been his birthday as well and so and the first Christmas and, you know, yesterday and then well, we're coming up on the first anniversary of it in, in early July as well. So I think it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see how, how my emotional responses shift and how my mother's do as well after the majority of those firsts have happened, or at least that the year has passed. And so you no longer have these date based things looming on the horizon. There'll be more firsts, of course, you know, the first time my mother goes overseas on a trip, like will be the first time she's done that without him in 40 something years. Um, but as, as one example, but there won't just be these looming anniversaries where you think, how will I get through that day? What will I do to cope with that? Um, so yeah, I think in, in terms of, that's probably what surprised me the most. I mean, it's obvious in a way, but I think it's it surprised me how much those anniversaries and milestones have just created this, you know, uh, this visceral kind of almost physical feeling of, of the grief as well. Um, yeah, I I am astonished at how uh, accurate my inner clock is on yeah. those things. So I will, even now, which is now some years down the track. I'll sort of be feeling a bit miserable. And in your everyday life, you sort of think, oh, why do I feel miserable? And you'll figure out that something is annoying you. You'll place that emotion onto something. Yeah. Uh, in the same way as you'll feel terrible about yourself and look at your period app and go, oh, that's where I am in my cycle. Uh, I will do that sometimes. I'll look at the calendar and be like, oh, this was the week that they told me it was terminal. Yeah. And I've just been feeling really horrible and off the whole week for no apparent reason. Yeah. I didn't even note that date when it happened. Yeah. I just knew it was, I was at 
somebody's house and so it was before this show and after that show and in relation to the Melbourne Comedy Festival and you figure it out, you triangulate and you realise that somehow, and that's weird because years aren't in our bodies, years are a relatively random imposition (laughs) on the seasonal turnover but there's something about you that subconsciously is aware of these things coming up. It's Yeah, it's amazing and it's, it's funny as well just sort of seeing it seeing it in others as well. I mean, some of the things that have come out of, you know, my my niece and nephew in the last little while who are five and eight, you know, so quite young, obviously, and this is their first time dealing with a situation like this, but the, you know, the pictures that they draw or the, you know, once my my mum was in the other room talking on the phone and she was, she was saying we could overhear her. I was with my nephew and we could overhear her. She was saying, Oh, I think I've got something on, on the fifth. I can't, I don't know if I can make it on the fifth. And my nephew turns to me and says, I think she thinks she's got something on. Cause the fifth is when pop died. And I was just speechless that this kid is just, you know, half hearing this conversation, half playing a computer game, but also kind of connecting up that, that potentially that temporal element of it. You know, this was at this point, I think two months after, after it had happened or thereabouts. And so it was just bizarre to me that, that that was just so innate, even, you know, and just from the mouth of babes kind of thing. It's, it was, um, yeah, amazing. Well, you were saying before we turned the microphones on that you had been confronted with a kind of, uh, Oh, maybe an Australian, maybe a particularly Australian, but kind of masculine imposition of an idea that you shouldn't be sad. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I think it, I think there was a real shift from, um, you know, shock and sympathy uh, to, come on, mate, aren't you over it? <laughs> uh, within, uh, within the space of probably about three months or thereabouts. And it was... It was, you know, not unexpected, but still just dumbfounding at the time for people, you know, to be sitting there and have effectively having people saying, you know, your emotional response to this, to this, you know, huge life situation is not valid. Surely you should be. Is some sort of self-indulgence. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Surely you should be through this by now. You know, you've had your time um, back to back to it kind of thing. And I, you know, I mean, that was. That was particularly heinous in, in, you know, it kind of happened a bit in a work context as well. And oh, I, no. and, uh, my response to that was to say, cool, I'm going part time, uh, and not, you know, because uh, I don't have the space for this right now. Mm. I don't have the space for this as a, you know, as a big part of my life because there's, you know, I'm still trying to get, <laughs> still trying to make sure that my mother inherits the money that she's inheriting correctly because that needs to be done. And I'm also trying to have space for myself to actually process what has happened because I've gone from, uh, you know, living in a relationship in New York at the beginning of the year to not, to, you know, being on a beach in Mexico, to flying straight back from there to intensive care at Royal North Shore. Mm. And, I have a fair bit to process because of that. So, no, uh, I'm not cool. (laughs) This misplacement of work in our lives, I think, is characteristic of the way we live now a lot. That maybe it's part of the idea that we should all be working on our passions or Mm. something, but there's some blurred line there. And I'm I'm, I'm hugely subject to it because my work is very personal. So there is a, a, a lot of overlap and interlock and all of this 
stuff happens. And there's the illusion on stage that what I'm presenting on stage is how I'm feeling at any given time. And to a certain extent, it has to be. You can't... An audience can smell if you're not being sincere. So part of the joy of being on stage is the requirement to be present on stage in the story that you're telling takes you away from your real life. But at the same time, work isn't life. Mm. This, yeah. this idea that you you know your people at work can say, well, get it together, and you go, no, 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 I've got more important things to deal with, yeah. which everyone would kind of acknowledge on the face of it. If you said, are there more important things than work? They'd say yes, and yet they sacrifice their relationships, their health, yeah. their children's well-being in the future mm-hmm. for this illusion, yeah. which is a construct. Absolutely. I mean, what what is a corporation? It's a legal fiction. Exactly. Yeah, they taught us well. They did at Sydney Uni. I did not read a single case from beginning to end throughout my entire legal uh, studies. Yeah, I I feel like I may have read excerpts of one at some point. I don't. Yeah, I don't think I've ever read a full case beginning to end. I, that should have been the sign that, clue? that, that it was <laughs> that that. Uh, that uh, neither of us were destined to be lawyers, uh, but um, yeah, it's uh, I, I'm I'm very I'm very glad with that life decision to uh, to not go down that. When path. did you decide? Did you to not be a lawyer after yes. I started being a lawyer? How long were you into being a lawyer before you knew, and how long before you actualized that knowledge? Yeah, so I, that happened pretty quickly. I. I so I did the classic clerkship thing at the end of fourth year uni, and then <laughs> paralegaled for um, all of fifth year. So worked at a law firm for about you know just over twelve months at that point, and then went overseas for a year, and came back, and it was two thousand and eight, and so everyone was you know being denied their ability to start their job because the world was in financial crisis. So uh, my job offer was pushed back by about six months at that that point. I started in, I think it was October 2009, and I made the decision in December 2009 that I did not want to be there anymore, and I finished my first rotation and was like, I'm going to another job now, bye. Um, I mean, that's pretty good. So it was six months as as an actual lawyer. So did you get your practicing certificate? Mm -hmm. I did. I don't have it anymore, I don't think, because I have not been practicing. But um, yeah, I got admitted, got my practicing certificate. yeah, and but it's uh, yeah, it's not. I I've had zero regrets about that decision. Was there any particular instance that made you realize it? Um, I I just kind of looked around one day and and just went, if I stick at this, you know, if this is if this is what I do. You can kind of see what you become because they're, you know, it's all around you. You know, you see what a partner at a law firm looks like because they're all around you. Yeah, and the answer is miserable. Yeah, the, or a sociopath. Exactly. Yeah, and I just, I just didn't, I didn't want to. It's not entirely fair. There are also deep eccentrics. There are, there are very deep eccentrics, and and you know, survive. It, it, exactly right, and um, survive better at the bar probably than than as a partner at a corporate firm. But um, it. Uh, it just has never been... Yeah, it, it, I just looked around and said, I don't want to become that. Like, and I don't want to do the things that I apparently have to do to become that. And if I'm going to work 
very hard and work on something like I, I would prefer to actually be interested in it I would prefer it not to be hey you're the junior one so you're the one putting together folders of documents and oops we forgot to give you a document and they need to be in chronological order so now you need to do this again I was just like yeah. why did I study for five years to do this the combination of having to pay intense attention to mm-hmm. something that you are not at all interested in and there being quite high stakes was the thing that broke me I think it Partly, it didn't need to be me. It could have been any monkey with a brain. Yes. Uh, secondly, you couldn't do it with half a mind. No. You couldn't be thinking of something creative on the side because you had to make sure that there were no spelling errors or no misplaced clauses. So yeah. you did need to pay attention, but it was also really boring, <laughs> but also millions of dollars were on the line. Exactly. And I found that it filled me with rage. Yeah. Yes. The whole, you just thinking in five years, a computer will do this better. Yeah. Why? Yeah, exactly. I was just, yeah, I was just very, it, it was just unhappy work. Mm. It was just very unhappy work. And yeah, I was glad to see the back of it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing was realizing that it wasn't just me. And, mm. and I'd always felt like I was maybe weak or wrong or that if I quit, it would show that I couldn't hack it. And I remember the first time I cried at work and my brother was working at the firm at that time, but he was taking a day off and he said, oh, go see Nick. Nick Mendoza-Jones was his best friend. He said he has tea in his office, go to his office. And I turned up at Nick's office. I knew Nick from when I was a teenager, but we weren't super close friends. Mm. Turned up at his office door in tears and he knew exactly what to do because it happened all the time. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And then sometime later I had an, a, a, a symptom of anxiety where my face went numb, half of my face went numb, and I lost the ability to speak words. And I thought it was a mini stroke or I thought something terrible had happened. And again, I told my brother and he turned to his then girlfriend, now wife, and she said, oh, it happens all the time. And I just thought... Yeah, I, you're not the first person to t- tell me that that's happened to them while working at a law firm. Yeah. In fact, they may have worked at the same firm yeah. that you did as well. Right? A... But that, of like, oh, so somebody being so stressed that they lose the ability to use words mm. is not worthy of note yep. in this environment. No. And it's funny because I think... I mean, I, I've never had that sort of visceral physical response of, like, work stress, but I think at at various points in the last, you know, six, nine months, the, the physical responses that I have felt to the emotional stress, you know, I have felt like, you know, feeling a lot of indigestion or just like tightness in the chest and all these things where I'm like, am I, do I have like some kind of heart problem now? Or is this, is this something that's all of a sudden just coming out of nowhere and just realizing that no, there's just been so much going on over that period of time that has built up that I'm just holding so tight and just like kind of just feeling so yeah just feeling so tight in the chest or just feeling kind of ill and not hungry and this and that it's just I I, I've, I don't know I've become a lot more in tune to my body's physical responses to my emotional state in a way that I haven't before well um, you, you see that a lot of of it's it is totally possible under stress to put it aside and you feel like you can do that indefinitely but the energy that it takes to maintain a calm facade, mm. the energy that it takes to even convince yourself that you're calm, while in the background all this stuff is going on, 
it's exhausting. Yeah. Your body will come back at you. And that sounds like really hippie-ish and wishy-washy, but it is actually the physical reality of the world is that if you refuse to... Uh, I'm not saying, like, indulge in your emotions and wail and tear your hair and put ashes on your head. Though mm. I think we should make space for that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you refuse to kind of confront it or deal with it or process it or acknowledge it, it'll leak out. Yeah. Like, it just does. It just does. It'll come for you. Yeah. Absolutely. And it'll come for you out of left field when you're not expecting it. Yep. When you think you're fine or you, you've gone to the movies with a friend and... I went to Interstellar and there's a line there where he's talking about his love for his daughter and what the mum said when she died. And mm. I just, re- like, just yeah. not even quiet tears, like proper racking yeah. sobs in the middle of a full movie theatre. Like, it'll come for you. Yeah, it will. It definitely does. It definitely does. But, yeah, so what's... Uh, where, where are, how are we doing for time? Oh, perfect. Um... I, I will ask you two more questions mm-hmm. and then I will release you into the wild. <laughs> we can uh, maybe go for a swim. Um, <laughs> but uh, my first question would be, America, how's it different? Oh, all sorts of ways. Um, it's, it's funny because you feel like you know it and you feel like it's not different because it's, we're so exposed to its culture and we, um, and we speak the same language, but... There are, there are just fundamental, there are just fundamental disconnects uh, and they, and they come up more, you know, it's the way that, the way that day-to-day interactions happen, you know, it's, and again, it's a stereotype, but, you know, service culture is so different and driven by tipping versus, you know, tipping being such an expectation versus it not being an expectation at all. Yeah. I find it terrifying in America the way they look at you. Exactly. And it's a, but it's funny, you know, you sort of. Uh, you know, having spent so many years there and then coming back here, you know, I sit down at a, at a cafe or a restaurant in, a, in Sydney and I just go, why is nobody coming to take my order? Why is nobody <laughs> checking how my, uh, how my, how my meal is going or whatever? You sort of have these expect, expected markers that, that happen at every restaurant or cafe in America, um, but just don't happen here. And um, it's, it's been interesting sort of seeing that ad- adjustment in myself where I come back here and I'm like, well, now I expect this level of, you know, groveling servi- servitude, which is like <laughs> a horrible thing to expect. Um, but yeah, it's, um, and it's, uh, and also, you know, I, I lived in New York, which, you know, as many will tell you is not really America. It's mm. uh, it is, you know, a crazy global city. It's a city of, uh, it's convenient, but not easy. Um, it's uh, it's a lot of fun and also probably one of the loneliest places in the world that I have that I've ever been. Uh, but um, it's also not really America. You know, you go to other parts of America, it's a lot more, you know, open and friendly and just you know community minded and that sort of thing. And New York can be as well, but I think it can also be a very, in spite of the millions of people there and the and the thousands of opportunities on a day-to-day basis it can still be a very uh, lonely alienating place yeah yeah Yeah. so where can people find you online Uh, (laughs) so i am on instagram and twitter as call me jho um that's probably about it not very accurate uh sorry just uh, yeah c-a-l-l-m-e-j-h-o brilliant thank you so much for having tea with me thank you alice
This dolphin mistress that we have got Elsie Thompson, it is her name And she helps the dolphins at every frame Loudly rifle doll, loudly rifle day On Monday morning when she comes in She hangs her coat on the highest pin Turns around for to view her frames Crying, damn you dolphins, cry up your hands Loudly rifle doll, loudly rifle day and when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifles all, lally rifles day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.